Hello, I'm Chrissy Parkinson. Welcome to my journey through the world of drinks without alcohol. After 18 years as head of wine for a restaurant group, I became co-founder of the specialist know and load drinks consultancy Brimful Drinks. I believe that all drinks, whether they have alcohol or not, should look beautiful and taste great. If you care about low and no drinks, this podcast is for you. I am your alcohol-free sommelier. This week, I've been finding out whether drinks without alcohol are more likely to spoil than alcoholic ones. Apparently, it's much harder to develop a stable alcohol-free drink than you might expect. And this has some big implications for how these drinks are stored and served. My two guests this week both have first-hand experience of this. But let's start with James, who can explain the basics of spoilage. Well, Chris, of course, spoilage is caused usually by bacteria, mould or yeast. It's the same things that affect food. And when alcoholic drinks, these are all taken care of by the alcohol, which kills or negates all of those components. Soft drinks usually will be pasteurised at high temperature um, and they have lots of sugar in them, which reduces the impact of, of those things as well. But no and low drinks tend to be made with less sugar and can be susceptible to spoilage. So most brands find when they're using plant-based materials or any kind of organic substance in their drinks, can you know you can be introducing into your formula, particularly yeasts and, and bacteria. Things like tea will have on it yeasts and, and mold spores and some kind of bacteria. And, and if you don't take measures, then you're likely to find unwanted growths in, in, in your drink at some point down the track. I know of very few drink manufacturers in the no and low world who haven't run into spoilage problems at some point. Spoilage is exactly what it sounds like. The drink may look, smell or taste unpleasant. Most people are familiar with cartons of orange juice that swell up or the top pops off. Bacteria and moulds are living organisms, so they require warmth, moisture, a source of food and usually oxygen to live and grow. Non-alcoholic beverages tend to be quite a good environment for them. The good news is there are some situations where they can't thrive. Our ancestors discovered that techniques like pickling, salting, drying, smoking and preserving with alcohol all kept food fresh for longer. We talked about vinegar-based drinks last week and those are based on a traditional way to preserve food. The problem comes when we take drinks that traditionally relied on alcohol for their stability and then take that alcohol out. Here's our first guest this week, Simon Rucker, founder and joint CEO of Timeless Drinks. Simon is part of the team that created Nine Elms Number 18, so he's been through the process of developing a drink and bringing it to market. I don't think people sort of stop and think that one of the reasons we like certain things today is because they were easy to both produce en masse and preserve en masse. And what we're doing today is somewhat upending some of those nostrums and trying new things and discovering perhaps what people 
discovered hundreds of years ago was that they were bloody difficult to do, <laughs> particularly when it came to mass producing and, and distributing them. So India, India Pale Ale versus Pale Ale is a perfect example, okay? My forebears made their fortunes in port. But again, port was a, a type of wine, a fortified wine that travelled very well. And I think you know, alcohol is something that you get naturally from the controlled spoilage of certain food and drink stuffs. That nevertheless then creates a kind of stable environment. You know, the drink gets to a point where it is both delicious and stable and is preserved indefinitely. So whereas what we're dealing with now is this much more subtle balance of trying to you know, saying, I like this taste, how can we keep it forever? And that is a much more, you know, difficult, technically difficult thing to achieve. The way Simon puts it, it's like saying, we want a new car, but it mustn't have wheels. It's possible to develop such a thing, but very hard to make it work as well as the original. Our next guest is Tom Ward of online supplier Wise Bartender. His warehouse in Somerset contains over 450 different non-alcoholic drinks, so he's had some experience of products that are not as stable as they should be. You know, during the summer, we do get a few pings and a, a few noises from the pallets up high. And often what, it's, what we're finding is so a lot of these drinks are very experimental in a way. They're very new and the process hasn't quite gone to plan. And the heat just brings forward what's going wrong in that product or is it quite going to plan? So it does happen, unfortunately. There was one brand um, last year, unfortunately, had some production issues. So it happened in the process and a few natural yeasts were le left in the can. So, of course, you get a little bit of heat in it and it, and it starts a fermentation and the cans were going hard and things like that. So for those customers, yeah, you know, we, we put them right and we sort them out. But, you know, other times there is people who buy the drinks and they leave them in front of a, a warm radiator at times which doesn't help but it does mean that we can then go back to the producer and say look this is what's happened because these drinks should be quite stable really and if they've been near a heat source all it's doing is bringing forward what's going on in that product. Shelf life testing is a vital part of developing a new drink. Most producers use the services of specialist laboratories to do what's known as accelerated testing. Samples of the new beverage go through a range of tests to certify a reasonable shelf life. Back when James and I developed a new drink for Hakkasan, I remember these tests took about 12 weeks. And at the end, we heard from the lab that our drink was good for a best before date of one year. With more time, though, we could have extended that. Here's Tom again. Producing drinks without alcohol poses... Um, yeah, a few challenges, but but they are challenges that are being overcome. And one of the things we're seeing is, yeah, shorter dates than compared to their alcoholic, you know, siblings, so to speak. But another part of it is, is that actually some of these drinks um, aren't very old, so they can't necessarily be tested two, three, four years down the line. And, and an example I can give is that we've produced our own alcohol-free cider. We've just done our third run of it. So our first run of it only had a year's shelf life, but because it's been available now for well over a year, we were confident enough to say, well, we could put two years on it. So we're learning as we go with that one. But there's a number of reasons for that, I guess. What preservatives being used, there's a variety of preservatives and methods out there. And 
we're still a very experimental part of the alcohol-free journey. What are the options for producing a drink without alcohol? Most budding producers will use a highly skilled technical consultant to work on the development of the liquid. This expert will advise on decisions about ingredients, preservatives and whether or not to pasteurise. Here's Simon again, talking about his experiences, both good and bad. In the, in, the, in the same way that, you know, pickling things or salting things, essentially you create an environment where microorganisms don't like to be, or certainly they can't reproduce. So even in sort of, you know, good quality drinks today, you will find microorganisms been in a dormant state, whether they be, you know, fungi or molds, yeast, you know, bacteria or whatever, but they, they can't go on to spoil the drink or the food um, because they are retarded by the environment. It's, you know, it's either too cold or too hot to acidic or to alkaline, or they are prevented from doing what they need to do because, I don't know, the osmotic pressure is too much and it's too much salt. So there's no way that they could, they could bud and you know, reproduce because they would be turned inside out, literally, by the, you know, the sort of forces. Obviously, you know, if you're doing particularly a, a cordial-type drink you dilute, it makes a lot of sense to do a, a high-acid content drink because it's naturally it doesn't require a lot of preservatives you know as soon as you get into that next you know the ready to drink sort of format you've got massive problems with with spoilage and uh, shelf life and stability and you know you and i both know that there are a number of companies who are innovating in the no and low space who have struggled to stabilize what were otherwise high quality sort of drinks and formulations we now know how difficult it is to make something that is both natural, non-alcoholic, without the use of a lot of preservatives. But what was fascinating was even these people who came from very highly technical backgrounds, lots of experience doing production for existing types of both alcoholic and non-alcoholic and dairy type drinks, so a broad range, were totally unprepared for the complexities of high-quality, non-alc, low-preservative drinks. And they were flummoxed, utterly flummoxed by why initially lots of products across you know, different brands went bad. They couldn't work it out. And we originally set out, perhaps naively, to do it without any preservatives at all, because we believe, or well, we were so confident in the quality of the ingredients and the you know, quality control, quality assurance of the people that we were talking to, that we wouldn't need to. And that was naive. We, we paid for that. I mean, the nice thing today, Christine, is that you know, consumers want an authentic human story behind the brands, they, you know, the products that they consume. And so in many ways, they do want to hear about failures because it makes it more believable. As people have lost faith in big companies, and this is one way of regaining that trust and, and relationship. But, you know, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, legally, you just don't want to sort of, you know, sort of put your hand up and go, yeah, we, we failed. We got it wrong. You know, our drinks blew up. <laughs> no one wants to say that. We'll be back in a minute to find out why kombucha and non-alcoholic spirits have their own unique problems. I'd like to say a big thank you to Nine Elms, our sponsor for this episode. Nine Elms number 18 Ruby Velvin is an excellent new type of non-alc drink that works equally well as an aperitif or with a meal. 
It has lovely red fruit and herbaceous flavours, reminiscent of a dry red vermouth. There's real complexity too, so it's an ideal match for many different foods. Nine Elms Ruby also works as a vibrant and refreshing spritz served on ice with a splash of tonic. We heard from Simon that ready-to-drink beverages, or RTDs, are a particular challenge. Another product that can be a problem to store and handle is kombucha. Here's Tom and James. No, we have to watch the kombuchas. So the kombuchas like to be below 20, if not lower, actually. So, so in the summer, we do make sure that the kombucha is in the coolest part of the warehouse. We are careful to have kombuchas that are a little bit more stable. So some of the real kind of authentic raw kombucha is a little bit more unstable. It's fantastic for your gut and it is a fantastic drink, but unfortunately doesn't doesn't quite work for our uh, <laughs> online operation. I guess the only other one that, that people aren't necessarily always aware of is the best way to store some of the alcohol-free spirits. So an alcoholic spirit is, <laughs> is full of preservative. So you can leave it in your cupboard for as long as you like uh, and it will be fine. But obviously an alcohol-free spirit hasn't quite got the same protection against some of the natural bacteria and things. So once it's opened, it probably should be put in, in a fridge, if not a cool place. And you should be looking to consume that probably within three months just to be on the safe side. But that's one that people aren't quite so aware of. Any exposure to air is going to be problematic, potentially. There are so many points in the process where you might get some kind of contamination. You know, it's a real risk. No matter how careful you are, there are multiple ways that your product can be exposed to spoilage. So it's difficult. And, you know, if you have your drink looks like it should be on a shelf, then then that's where people will put it, whether it's meant to be there or not. As Tom and James both point out, there's an awareness problem here. Non-alcoholic drinks, and particularly the alcohol-free spirits, tend to look just like the alcoholic versions. If the packaging and presentation closely resembles gin or rum, it's easy to assume that the storage and handling are the same. The reality is, they're not as robust as drinks with alcohol in. Once open, they typically need to live in the fridge. Kept cool, they'll taste good for three months or so. But bartenders and consumers are used to spirits that last almost indefinitely. So there's a real need for education here. The issue of exposure to oxygen made me wonder. In the wine world, there's a lot of interest in how to store open bottles in good condition. Restaurants and consumers can buy systems such as the Verde Van or the Coravan. These work by preventing air from reaching the wine. They either create a vacuum or an inert gas such as argon is squirted into the bottle. Now, given that oxygen is one of the things most bacteria and moulds need to grow, it seems possible these systems could help to keep alcohol-free drinks in good condition once they're open, along with storage in the fridge, of course. I'd love to hear from anyone who's trying this, so please get in touch if you are. One other interesting issue relates to preservatives. These are super unpopular. Consumers don't like seeing e-numbers on their drinks. But not all preservatives are industrial chemicals. A lot of botanicals are also used to preserve food and drink. After all, 
the original purpose of adding hops to beer is that they're a great preservative. It seems like that's another opportunity to communicate and educate and to make a strength out of something that's often perceived as a weakness. The last word this week goes to both Simon and James. I would say the other thing that I think is a big, a big factor is that consumers and indeed retailers have a sometimes irrational fear of preservatives. You know, citric acid derived from citric fruits, it has, it's an E number. And when people see it on the back of a pack, they go, Ugh. with alcohol, you could fudge that, that issue because alcohol was this brilliant preservative. Now you've, you've removed that. It's a can of worms. The only solutions really are, you know, pasteurization in combination with some kind of preservative. But I mean, it's the choice you have to make because alcohol, alcohol is preservative. So, you know, you take one out, you've got to put another one in. A huge thank you to my guests this week, Simon Rucker, Tom Ward, and of course, to James, my colleague at Brimful Drinks. Join me next week for a special episode. I'll be visiting the Square Root Soda Factory in East London and finding out whether soda has grown up enough to be considered a real non-alcoholic drink. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe to the Alcohol-Free Sommelier on your favourite podcast platform. I'm Chrissy Parkinson. Goodbye from me, and whatever your drink, drink well. <laughs>